0: So that's amazing how the Lord speaks. We were in Body Life group this past week, and we were praying for one another. And uh, <laughs> I was praying for one of our, um, our, uh, one of our BLG members, and uh, he after we had done praying, he says to me, um, I'm trying to remember if I wrote all that stuff down on a connection card, because you just prayed everything about my life right now. And so whether or not you write it down, God's going to communicate it to us anyways. So, but you might as well utilize the card so that... Um, we can save God the trouble. Um, so well, today's kind of a, a great, bittersweet day for us. I mean, we we'll are continue on with our series, The Art of Finding Joy, with a specific uh, uh, emphasis on mental health. But also, this is the last official week that Bruce and Dorchi will be here with us. And so uh, if you guys know Bruce and Dorch, they have been with us since the very beginning uh, of this church, two and a half years ago, even before then. And so uh, later at the end of our service, we're going to spend some time praying over them. And so I just want to let you guys know that we love you. We believe in you. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending these last two years, uh, two and a half years, being faithful uh, in, in every way. Never have we ever, uh, man, it doesn't, you don't get more faithful than you guys. And so Bruce and Dorch, they lead a BLG. Bruce leads our local engagement um, and they are the first ones here at Jarvis every Sunday because he's pulled that, that darn trailer for the last two and a half years. Uh, and they're the last ones to pull out of the parking lot every Sunday. They never miss a heartbeat. They pull Evie out of bed. I just can't, I mean, I can't do that. <laughs> so well, we love you guys and really appreciate it. And so we also want to welcome your family that's here to celebrate um, your weekend with you. Um, so uh, we'll get a chance to pray for you. Uh, as well afterwards and I do also want to say, also want to say congratulations to Bruce and uh and Minsoo and I think we had a couple of graduates this who else graduated this semester college Nicole graduated hey one was just <laughs> Molly graduated that's right congratulations guys I know we got a few more people that graduated so a great milestone so congratulations God's going to use you guys greatly so we're in the book of Philippians and Today we're on chapter four, as uh, Catherine read earlier. We're talking about conflicts in relationship, Um, and uh, we live in a culture where we celebrate and we actually entertain ourselves with broken relationships. Think about that. In our culture, bad relationship makes for great entertainment. All right, you think about that. Name one of your favorite TV shows. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, (laughs) the Red. Yeah, bad, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a roller coaster. Yeah. Um, think about it. It's a bit twisted that we take pleasure in watching other people's bad relationships, right? Think about that. It's, that's very twisted. It makes for great entertainment, but real life drama, and you know this, real life drama in workplace, home relationships, real life drama, really, really is not fun, right? It's fun when you watch it on Friends, right? Um, I'm dating myself now, uh, <laughs> um, but it's not fun when it's happening in your own life. As a matter of fact. Um, dramas is actually, for most of us, it's what triggers our mental health issues, right? If you struggle with stress, depression, any of the sorts, uh, what triggers that mainly for most of us is, is relationships, right? The lack of security in relationships. It has less to do oftentimes with performing a task. It has more to do with whether or not the task that you're going to perform is going to please the other person, right? And so a lot of our mental health issues is tied to the fact that our relationships have tension in them. So drama makes people anxious. It stresses them out. We avoid people because of it. We stop picking up the phone, all right? Uh, I admit that I've done that at times. We take new routes around the office, right? So you, you kind of like, navigate around a certain person's cubicle, right? Uh, we avoid family gatherings. We stop coming to small group, into church gatherings, right? And so, these are the symptoms of something else that's happening inside of us. In today's passage, Paul is trying to repair. And that's the word as I was praying for us this week. That's the word that God put on my heart. God, Paul is trying to repair a broken relationship between two women in the church. And so, even though the characters are women, uh, but, you know, and I'm not saying that women tend to have more drama because that's not what I'm saying. I didn't say that. Um, that today's story, I just want to make sure that's clear for the record <laughs> Um, it happens to be that, in this case, it was two women, um, but did you know that, uh, that God is very interested? He's very interested in repairing relationships in your life now, today. He's probably more interested in that than you are. His plan for you is to share the gospel and bring the kingdom of God to others. That's his plan, but that plan does not preclude mediocre, and broken relationships. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. And so um, it's actually quite the opposite in Toronto, that it's actually healthy Christian relationships that actually is a huge testimony. It's a bigger argument. It's a bigger apology at times to our city, a non-believing world, when we can get along well. And Jesus actually makes that argument. He says that, you know, uh, if you love one another, by the way that you love one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. So in our city, where they want to see it before they believe it, it's very important that we pay attention to relationships. These women, they were part of a team that planted churches. They impacted the city of Philippi. They did many things in the kingdom of God. They did many very good things to impact other people. But yet Paul, Paul still says that Paul wanted more for them. He wanted more for them than to just do religious work and to do good things. He, see, see, God doesn't want to just use us. He doesn't just want to use us as pawns in this mission that He has for this earth. That He's very concerned about your own transformation because it's through your own transformation and working through relationships and conflicts that He often brings transformation to others. The health of our relationship is a barometer. It's the, the, how healthy we are in relationships. That's a barometer for how healthy we are mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Every day, our relationships all around us, family, work, you know, your, your housemate, um, that's the context in which you actually practice and develop spiritual maturity, all right? It's not being a spiritual hermit and you're memorizing, you know, scriptures for, you know, months at a time. That's not how you develop deep spirituality, it's actually in the context of relationship that you develop that. So reading and prayer, those are actually tools that God gives to you to invest in relationships, which is the context in which you work out your spirituality. Is that making sense to you guys? Right. So I would go as far as to say that there is a direct correlation between the depth of your spirituality and the depth of relationships that you have. Right. So there's a correlation. You know, I mean, we all have different personalities, so it doesn't mean that we're all going to be, like, sharing our hearts all the time with people. But there's a direct correlation between how spiritually mature a person is and their ability to connect with people at a deeper level. So a deeply spiritual person is not, like, just hitting away, being mentored by, like, uh, you know, by, you know, the, the environment and, 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 you know, being a hermit. But it's actually people that are deeply nurturing and managing Nurturing and managing their relationships. That's where you see spiritual maturity come about. So, uh, we can't claim healthy uh, spirituality if we leave in the wake behind us all, a heap of bad relationships. Right? Some of the people that bother me the most are, you know, no offense to anybody, nobody in this church in particular. Uh, no, I'm serious. Like I can't think of anybody like that in this church. But I've, in the past, you know, in previous you know experiences, some of the people that bother me the most are those who can quote scripture and they're so good and they're very like you know pious and but they everybody hates them. Like they don't get along with that right. And so they're and and again, I mean, nothing against them in particular. But again, your ability to relate to people has a direct uh, correspondence to your ability to apply spirituality. It's not about knowledge; it's about the ability to apply knowledge, right? And so um, you can't claim healthy spirituality if your relationships are an inch deep. You can't claim healthy spirituality if we don't communicate how we feel with one another, including joys and sorrows. So uh, Yodia and uh, Syntyche were leaders in the church. Uh, Something went wrong between the two. We don't know. Uh, Paul doesn't say. Um, They were still influencing the people around them. But in this case, it, it was happening in a negative way. So uh, here's something for us to keep in mind, especially you leader types. And all of you guys, to some degree, are leader types. The more influence a person has, the more good that you can do. But the more influence a person has, the more damage you can do. You got to think about that. You want to be an influential person? The higher you go, the more good you can do. Great. But also, be aware, the more people you have the capacity of hurting. And so this is why Paul is confronting Yodia and Syntyche. Um, in a very gentle manner. So I wrote up here that it takes a strong inner life to properly handle tension in relationships. We'll explain that throughout the the message. But it takes a strong inner life to properly handle tension in relationships. And I got this actually from Proverbs 4.23, one of my life verses. Uh, And uh, the proverb writer says this, that keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring's of life, uh, other versions like the NIV says, "Guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life." And so, what the proverb writer is saying is that you need a healthy inner life, you need a healthy core identity, you need a healthy center, because it's from that place that you actually affect other people, right? And so, if the spring, if the well, if that's bitter inside of you, what you spill onto other people is bitter. But if what's inside you is sweet and it's nourishing, then what you Not spew, but what you pour and lavish onto other people is sweet and nurturing. There's a place from where you live, and if that's broken, then you multiply brokenness. If it's healing, then you multiply healing to people. I also have up here another, uh, you know, these are nuggets that I'm trying to sow into us, that we need to bring order to our private life if we expect to see order in our public life that you need to find some level of order. I'm not saying, you know, uh, focus on yourself and become like a self-help, you know, expert of yourself. I'm not saying that necessarily. But there's a level in which you need to bring order into this right here if you expect to have some order with your outside life. You see this with God, with the Trinitarian God, right? Trinitarian, Trinity is just a uh, a amalgamation of the two words uh, tri and unity, trinity, tri-unity, right? And so God himself is complete. He's a a complete order. He has complete peace. He has complete harmony within himself. God is not, he's never conflicted inside of himself. He has this this perfect harmony inside of the the three persons that make up God. Uh, To say it another way, there is no cognitive dissonance in God. He's always one. And therefore, because he has a stable inner life, he's able to give perfect life to others. Think about that. That's why lo- life flows from the Trinity. Hey, that's kind of cool, Trinity life. That's why life flows from the Trinity, because he perfectly enjoys it himself. There's no drama in the Trinity, right? Here's the mystery and the wonder of the Bible, because it's a one cohesive message the history and the wonder of the Bible is this, that from start to finish, God is eager to give you that kind of life, that that life was meant for us to experience and to live. Jesus came to give us the deep inner life that the Trinity has enjoyed from eternity past. It's yours. It belongs to you. we got to mine it. So I want to ask us this morning, um, think about it, and ask yourself, in my private world, do I have things in order? not your public world, not, your, not your, your career, but in your inner self, the, the wellspring of life the proverb writer uh, talks about. In that place, is it chaotic? Is there a lot of tension? Is there a, a lot of brokenness? Are there a lot of relationships that you're avoiding? Those are indicators that there's something inside of you that you're not allowing to, to seep in. And ask yourself, is that the reason why my relationships are so fragile? Or, you know, and I I have to deal with this. I ask myself, is that the reason why I only go certain levels with people, right? Am I only an inch deep with people? Because there's a deep insecurity about myself. So you have to ask yourself that question this morning. I want to show you a picture of an iceberg. This is from um, a book called Emotionally uh, Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro, who's a pastor out in New York City. He talks about the iceberg. And it says, um, and this is an easy analogy, he says that um, when you are, you know, sailing the, the, the water, the seas there, you see only the tip of the iceberg, that everything else that's important about the iceberg is actually underneath, right? And so most of us, we tend to deal with only the tip of the iceberg in our life, the symptoms, the, the, uh, the uh, externals, the public part of our life, right? Because that's what everybody sees, and so that's what we tend to deal with the most, when the reality is that the deeper part of who you are, the core of who you are, lies underneath. And so, you can't, you can't deal with the deeper parts of you if you don't understand who you are and what's going on inside of you. And so, Schizero says that, um, he says that we can't change, or better said, we can't invite God to change us when we are unaware and we do not see the truth of who we really are. Right? So think about that for a sec, how much of you lives beneath the surface, you know, and depending on your personality, like, if you're very extroverted, like, you got, like, this much underneath the surface, you know, not that you're not a deep person, I'm not saying that, uh, but, I mean, you're just, like, you're very, like, out there, like, you know, you wear it on your sleeve, right, and uh, to some degree, that's very healthy, to uh, another degree, sometimes that that's not very healthy, um, but for a lot of us, you know, and I would put myself in the category that, I tend to show only the good parts of myself, and there's a bit of me that's underneath the surface that is struggling to get up. Without a stronger inner life, it's difficult for us to deal with the conflict in relationships. If you're not strong internally, then it's hard to deal with the pressures externally, right? Because it presses into the core. And so when our inner life is in turmoil, our feelings are fragile. Think about that. Like, if I were to critique you if you're, you know, internally, if you're, you know, you're fragile inside, remember to critique you. What, what's, what's your initial response, or what are people's initial response? Defensiveness, right? They get, they get def- uh, defensive real quick. Right? And they avoid, and so we start protecting ourselves. <clears throat> so an author, um, pastor, and author, Gordon McDonald, he writes this. He asks the question: Why is it that for so many, the answer to personal tension? And pressure lies not in going to the bridge, and when he says bridge, he means to the heart, to the bridge of life, but rather in attempting to run faster, to protest more vigorously, to accumulate more, to collect more data, to gain more expertise. We are of an age in which it seems instinctive to give attention to every cubic inch of life other than our inner worlds. The only place from which we can gain the strength to brave or even beat any outer turbulence and what mcdonald is saying is that we rarely take time to work on our inner life that as a matter of fact we do the opposite and so we build the outer life and so we accumulate and we accomplish and we conquer and we achieve and we uh uh, we impress people but if the inner life stays fragile those things will eventually press into the person and what happens you will implode so, for those of you guys who are high achievers, let me warn you that if your inner life, if you fail to build your inner life to match your outer life, you will implode. Now, for those of us who are only building your inner life, uh, you're self-obsessed. So, that's a different sermon for a different day. We'll get to that another time, all right? There needs to be a, a, a sense in which you are building inner and the outer, right? So, um... When people begin to implode, one of the biggest signs of implosion uh, for, you know, for any one of us, not just high achievers, is passive-aggressive behavior, right? So, um, passive-aggressive behavior uh, is defined as um, indirect expression of hostility, such as procrastination. Now, you wouldn't think that procrastination was being hostile, but think avoidance, Right? stubbornness sullen behavior deliberate or repeated failure to accomplish requested tasks for which one is often explicitly responsible for everybody knows that guy if you don't know that guy you're probably that guy <laughs> no so there's something about this guy let's say that guy's me okay I'm passive-aggressive at times. It's built into my Asian uh, nature. Uh, (laughs) We're very shame-based. And so we're really roundabout in the way that we handle conflict, right? And so because there's a bit of insecurity, or there's a bit of like, you don't want to take the blame, right? And so you drop the ball on things purposefully, sometimes to punish people. I was reading, I've got a lot of slides today. Sorry, I typically don't do a lot of slides, but. uh, I thought it would be helpful for us. I was reading a, 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 an article in Psychology Today a while back, and um, I, I recalled it this week. It was seven reasons why people use passive-aggressive behavior. Now, use this to test yourself. Don't use it to test your wife. Don't use it to test your, uh, your boss. You know, don't use this against your friend. You know, don't use this against anybody else in your life other than yourself right now, okay? Uh, and then uh, we'll then talk about how do you deal with other people later. Uh, But seven reasons why people use passive aggressive behavior. The first one is because in our society, anger is uh, socially unacceptable, right? Now, can you give an American a little bit of permission to talk about Canadian culture? Is that okay? All right. So, especially in Canada, it's very unacceptable to, to blow up. Now, people do. I've seen Canadians get angry right? Very passive-aggressively angry, uh, but I've seen it happen, right? They'll honk after they pass me up. I'm like, dude, honk when you're passing me up or behind me. Don't honk like when you're like three cars in front of me, right? So, uh, so I've seen this happen, right? So in our society, it's like, okay, you can be angry, but to a certain level, blah, blah stuff like that, right? So uh, I've heard other Canadians tell me this, right? So we tend to live in a society where that's where, so we're, we're pretending, we're pretending, we're stuffing, we're repressing, Number two, uh, we sh- sugar-coated hostility is also also socially acceptable. So when you're just being like nice to people, but you're kind of underhanding, you know, underhand comments towards them where you're, you know, you're saying one thing to their face and something else to another, right? So you're sugar-coating your hostility with nice things. Uh, that's very, uh, you're, you hold people in contempt. It's very patronizing when you do that to people. <clears throat> Do you, you do that. Uh, Three is uh, passive aggression is easier than assertiveness. This is true. I'm an expert at this. I'd rather kind of find a roundabout way to kind of like direct, uh, to to deal with an issue than just to say, hey, let's have a conversation, let's sit down, let's talk about this, right? Because it's easier to kind of go roundabout than to do it directly head on. Number four is passive aggression is easily rationalized. Well, because it's not my fault why do I have to? So they should take initiative. So I'm just going to wait, you know, and in the meantime, I'm waiting, I'm taking jabs at them. Right. And so it's, you know, it's, it's a way to kind of like easily rationalize that you're in the right. Number five, I found this one to be the funniest one. Revenge is sweet. Because it's just fun to make them like, you know, uh, to treat them that way. It's, just, it's fun to see them squirm whenever I, like, I put them in an uncomfortable situation. When I ask them to do very hard things and I know they, they can't meet those expectations and I should have just talked to them about their performance or their behavior, but instead I do something else, it's fun to, to, to punish people that way. Maybe you're not as devious as me, so you haven't thought that far, but um, you're getting to know me. Um, the sixth reason why is passive-aggressive behavior is convenient. It's much more convenient. You don't have to prepare to be passive-aggressive. You just do it. Where if you wanted to deal with conflict, that you have to prepare yourself. You have to wait for the right time. You have to be prayed up. You have to get all the right people in the room, right? And then number seven is passive-aggression can be powerful. Because you know that you can win with this you know that at the end of the day that you can teach people a lesson, right? The worst way to be passive-aggressive is through email, by the way, okay? Like email, like, I mean, all caps, uh, yeah. it's like you don't, you don't speak to me this way when we're in front of each other. Why would you send me all-cap emails, right? And so the media in which we choose to communicate also says a lot about how strong we are internally. You know, it's easy to pick up a phone and just to, to text somebody that you're disappointed in in what they did. It's harder to call them up. It's harder to meet them face-to-face and then actually deal with those issues. So media is another way in which we actually avoid people. Needless to say, none of this is the way of Jesus. That if this is how I live my life in any one of these categories, that I need to repent. When I say the word repent, I don't want you to be scared. Repent is a very positive word. Repent means that I need to change the way that I think. And I need to think differently. I needed to embrace a new narrative in which I'm looking at a conflict. I needed to think about this situation differently. See, passive-aggressive behavior, if you're a believer in, in Jesus, is actually a failure to apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to your life when you choose to be passive-aggressive. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is primarily based on the communication of truth. And when you act passive-aggressive towards somebody, you actually do the opposite. You repress truth. You avoid truth. The the gospel, to a certain degree, can be very um, confrontational at first, because it points out things in our lives that God doesn't desire them to be there. But at the end of the day, it's shooting to redeem, to resolve. Passive-aggressive behavior, not so much. It seeks to revenge, to hurt, to punish. So it avoids the truth, and actually the achievement that it's trying to, to accomplish is not healing, and it's not reconciliation, but it's punishment. And it's, uh, it's completely opposite of uh, the gospel. What's the key to avoid this kind of behavior? Uh, it's not to be aggressive and it's not to be confrontational. For those of you guys who are not passive aggressive and you like to deal with things head on, you're also not necessarily in the right, okay? It doesn't mean now start like, you know, uh, bulldozing over people every time you disagree with them. It doesn't mean that, All right? There's a, there's a third way to approach conflict in life, right? It's not passive aggressiveness and it's not ultra aggressiveness either, Paul says the key, uh, when he's talking to, let's just read that real quick, Philippians chapter four. Uh, I don't know if we can throw that back up on the screen, Um, but I want to read that real quick. It's our shortest of the whole series, so it should be the shortest sermon of the series. We'll see. Uh, Paul says, verse two, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, to agree in the Lord. Now, what he's saying is that he's not saying, no, I'm telling Yodia and Syntagi, you need to have theology that agrees. You need to agree on doctrinal statements. He's not saying that. He's also not saying that you need to have the same opinion on everything. He's also not saying that. Here's the beauty of Christianity is that it allows people the breadth and the width of having disagreements. You can disagree, agree to disagree, and still live in unity and harmony and be in mission with God. That's the beauty. Nobody is authoritative when properly practiced in Christian community. You can have breath in uh, uh, opinions, right? So Paul's not saying that you have to be, you know, uh, you know robot-minded and f- believe the same thing and all that stuff. He's saying agree in the Lord. What does it mean to agree in the Lord? Well, it means to know your position and the other per- person's position in Christ and knowing who you are in Christ and knowing who they are in Christ that gives you the dignity to resolve the conflict. When you put your identity away and when you put their identity away, you're not bringing dignity to the conflict. You're bringing agendas, you're bringing hostility. You're not bringing the dignity that God gave you. Agree in the Lord. And there so first, understand your position in Christ. That's number 1. You're forgiven. Secondly, you're already accepted. And thirdly, you're an agent of reconciliation. That's who you are in the Lord. You're forgiven, you're accepted, and you're an agent of reconciliation. So when you're in conflict, you don't have to be defensive. You're forgiven already. I know you're, we're working towards the other person forgiving you, but you're already forgiven. Apply the gospel. You don't have to get defensive. Your feelings don't have to get hurt when people point out your failures, that you failed in certain areas because, guess what, we agree in the Lord that I'm already accepted by God. And so any critique or anything that you have to tell me is enhancing my salvation and my sanctification. But it's not critiquing me as an individual because you know why? I am in the Lord, right? And I'm an agent of reconciliation. And so whenever you come to me, I have to be willing to deal with the things that you want to deal with, right? And so I don't have to be defensive. Uh, the, second, the second thing to me uh, when we say agree in the Lord is just the flip, the flip side of that is that you have to understand the other person, that they are forgiven in the Lord, right? And so when you're approaching them or they're approaching you, you have to understand first and foremost that in Christ they're already forgiven. You, you're not allowed to hold thing, things against people, right? Secondly is that they've already been accepted by Christ, so it doesn't matter if you accept them back into uh, your life. The God already has done that. That has a transformative effect when you look at the person you typically think is kind of a, you know, kind of, kind of mean and kind of like hard to get along with it. Man, wow, God, your grace must be wide to accept that person into your kingdom. And God's saying, yeah, he's saying the same thing about you as well, right? And so when you realize these things, and you also know that God is molding, using you to mold them into the image of Christ. When you realize that this is happening, you don't have to be offensive when you deal with conflict, Okay you realize they're forgiven, they're accepted, they're being used to mold me into the image of God. I don't need to be on the offense when we're trying to deal through this issue together, right? So the gospel, when you both agree in the Lord, the gospel says you don't have to be defensive or offensive when you come together to work it out. A few years ago, Lynn and I, when we were, I was on staff at another church, um, and it was predominantly Uh, uh, Anglo church. Um, And so I was the only Asian person on staff, except another guy who was also on staff. And so it was about 80, 85% Anglo. It was a larger church, about 2,000 people. And so um, I was very insecure. I grew up in the ghetto. And so I grew up in inner city Detroit. That was me. And I was much more comfortable with, uh, you know, blacks than I was with whites. And so it was very difficult for me. So naturally, who do I gravitate towards? The other Asian staffer, right? And so we build a good relationship. Our first six months on the ground there, we're learning from them, and he's like a mentor to me, and then Linda's learning from his wife, and she's like a mentor and a sister to her, and so this is great, and like, you know, we can eat rice together and not have to make an excuse and all that stuff, and <laughs> so literally, I mean, that's, yeah, that's kind of how it felt, right? And so we're, uh, we're uh, living life together, and probably about a year into it, <clears throat> the wife of... Uh, of uh, the Sapphire, uh just goes, she just like literally switched, goes cold. And she no longer is associated with us. As a matter of fact, she's actually hostile towards us. And she's saying things that we don't believe is true. And we're shocked. And so I confront my friend and I say, hey, man, I don't, you know, I mean, you know, we need to work something out because something's something's wrong. And I don't know if we did something wrong. I want to apologize for it, but we're not sure if we did anything wrong. You tell us. And he says, oh, I'm sorry, we've hit that point in our relationship. <laughs> Where she only goes so far with people until she begins to envy well you know i I, I don't want to speak badly about her, but so until she, it's hard for her to build relationships and so so we're dealing with this, and man, this is draining this is draining for Linda, this is draining for me, um, and so we begin seeking counseling from other uh, staffers and other people, and we're trying not to gossip really, but we're just wondering what's going on, you know are we supposed to be here to help her and all that stuff. And so we're trying to figure things out. We're asking them to get counseling, and we just want to work through this conflict. And so, unfortunately, um, uh, we never resolved things between us and her. It was very difficult for us to accept that. Things with us and him were fine. Like, we were, you know, we still had lunch with him and stuff like that. But we were never able to resolve things with her. But what I learned through that season was so important for us, that through conflict, what God actually did was he used the tension to mold and to shape Lynn and I. Because there are so many times when we wanted to come to our own rescue and defend ourselves, right? There's so many times when we wanted to say, oh, yeah, so-and-so, she's treated us this way. And, you know, I, you know to kind of gang up. And we had to resist that over and over and over again. That God was using that tension in our lives to mold and to shape us like Jesus. And I often think about, you know, Jesus could have so easily said, I don't want to go to the cross for these people, Right? But he allowed the tension to shape him into the person of destiny that God had intended him to be. So we refused to gossip and we refused to speak bad of her and we extended grace and love. And it never brought full reconciliation the way that we thought it was supposed to be. Now, there's still time. We're still, you know, alive. But I, I don't know what the future is going to look like. But I realize that sometimes in the midst of tension, it's not about just fully bringing the relationship together again like it used to be. But there's work that God is doing in our hearts. You need a strong inner life in order to deal through those kinds of conflicts. So here are five indicators of a healthy inner life. I feel like Tony Robbins now, but this is all biblical stuff. I got this from the Apostle Paul. So Uh, first indicator is that we see reality the way that God does. That I don't look at people the way that I see them or the way other people see them. I'm looking at the way that God sees reality. I don't want any potential influence outside of God to dictate what I'm bringing to the table when it comes to reconciliation, right? I want to see the things that God sees. Number two is that uh, healthy inner life, we know when and when not to deal with conflict in order to further God's purpose. There are times when you need to confront. There are times when you need to pull back. Someone who is healthy in their inner life has this ability to discern when and, and how, Three is things like success, failure, popular opinion no longer drive who we are. We're not driven by these things. So it's not hurtful when people want to critique us, right? It's not hurtful when people have, you know, objections to our ideas. We're not driven by having to be the most popular person. Number four is we tend to put others, people's need above our own. So that was Philippians chapter 2 that we studied not too long ago, that Jesus did the same thing. Paul says that consider others more worthy of yourself. Somebody who's healthy, every time you're with them, they always seem so present, and they're so concerned with your story. It may be the most boring story, and you're like, the other day, I went shopping, went to Loblaws, and I got savings of 50 cents, right? I know you ladies like to talk like that. A person who's healthy inside isn't saying, this is such a long story, but the person's like, Wow. You know, maybe you're saying, I'm trying real hard to, like, you know, redeem this time. But, you know, but so you're, you're present with people, right? You're putting other people's needs above your own, right? You know, you're receiving texts from people, and you return them. You don't have time. I know you don't have time. You're, you're busy, but people are texting you. They need something from you. You don't say, no, I don't have time for them. You respond back and say, hey, can I call you later? Or, hey, can we meet up and talk about this? Maybe you're not right, right? So... You put other people's needs above your own. And number five is this that we don't work alone, that if you have a healthy inner life, that you value teamwork, you value other people's opinion, right? So I'm gonna call up the band. You guys go ahead and come up here and we'll close this out. I wanted us to go through Jesus's four steps of handling conflict. I realize that this has quickly turned into a Tony Robbins seminar, so I'm not gonna do that. But Jesus was masterful in handling conflicts. Let me give you the steps, anyways. It <clears throat> comes from Matthew 18. Step one is he tells us first to have a personal conversation with people. Why? Because that honors them. When you seek the personal conversation first, what you're doing is you're actually honoring that person, the dignity inside of them. You're saying they're worth my time and their effort, and my effort to confront them personally. Step two, if, if that doesn't work, if that doesn't bring resolution in the conflict, Jesus says then bring mediation with trusted people. Gather people that you trust in the church because this provides accountability, protection, and fairness to both parties, right? You don't bring your, your cheerleaders and your, your fans and people who agree with you, but if you have conflict with people, you bring those who are objective and those who are fair to bring accountability to the situation, right? You mediate with trusted people. If that doesn't work, Jesus says, well, then you need mediation with church leaders. And it's not that church leaders are the smartest and the wisest, right? It's not that church leaders are like, you know, we have lawyers in our church, so, you know, you you should know how to deal with legalities better than a pastor would, right? But it's the fact that is that with mediation with church leaders within Christians is that you're trusting God's authority and His judgment. You're placing, you're submitting yourself uh, to God's authority and God's judgment, And then step four is, if that doesn't work, and that doesn't solve the conflict, and the person is still hostile or offended and still continues to commit offense, Jesus says, there comes a point where you just need to release him and let him go. You just need to let go. For your own health, you need to let it go. Because Christianity and discipleship is not about coercion. It's not about making people feel guilty. It's not about making people do the things that you want them to do. At the end of the day, if the conversations don't work, you have to learn to let them go. And there's a big part in your life where when you're working with people, you you know that there's a limit in which you can only do so much, and you have to let them go, and you just have to trust God with them. You just have to believe that, God, I can't do much more in this season with this person, but will you in the next season, will you bring them healing that I couldn't bring to them? Would you do the things in their lives that I think you're showing me that you need to do? and Use other people to do that. Sometimes you have to release people onto a new season and allow God to use other people to speak into their lives. Right? Because if you don't do that, you know what builds up if you don't do that? Bitterness. If you don't release people emotionally, mentally, if you don't release them responsibilities over your life, then you build up building uh, bitterness, and bitterness is like a concrete like uh, ground. It's so hard to break through once, once it sets in. If the concrete sets in, it's so hard to break through. And so I strongly urge you this morning, if there's a relationship in your life that God is saying invest in, that you would be fully diligent in investing in that relationship. And if there's conflict that you're avoiding, that you ask God and say, God, what do you want me to do in this relationship? And as God is strengthening your innards, your innards, your innermost being that you would move forward in confidence that God wants to bring transformation as you deal with this tension or this conflict. But if you know that you've tried and you tried and people have tried with you and it's just time, it's season to let people go, just let them go. There's no use in living in bitterness. For the next five minutes, I want to lead us in a time of prayer, a very important prayer. I believe God wants to begin from this morning to be release, healing, and repairing relationships in your life and in our church. God wants to do that not because he just wants you to be healthy, but because he wants to bring health out of you onto other people in our city. For just a couple minutes, if you just don't mind just closing your eyes just so we can get a bit of focus. There are four different areas that I want to pray for. God, pray for those of us who are struggling in our marriage. Avoidance has been much more easier than talking things out. God, repair, repair. Bring the tools. Repair, God. God, in our family where there's been hurt, a sibling, a parent, an extended family member the bitterness, and I see bitterness just growing in, into deep roots. God, would you bring in the tools to uproot our bitterness out so we can forgive, and we can be forgiven. God, release that healing. Help us to let people go, let their offenses go. Some of you may need to say verbally with your lips, I forgive so and so. God, in the workplace, against our bosses, against our co worker, a supervisor, where we've held back in our performance because we don't want to serve underneath this leadership, God, give us a new way to think. Give us a new way to think. Help us to understand deeply what it means to honor those above us the way that we honor the Lord because we are working as if we're working unto the Lord. You bring the resolution where we need to have resolution, God, but where there's not. God, would you repair? Repair the culture of the work environment. Repair the culture of Bay Street. Repair the culture of the technology field. Lord, repair the culture of the medical industry. God, would you bring divine intervention into those industries where oftentimes money and power and influence has shaped the culture. God, would you now put love and grace at the forefront? And then lastly, Lord, I just pray that you would repair relationships in the church where there's been strain because of side comments or because of lack of intentionality or busyness. Lord, I pray repair that. Not that there's even necessarily conflict, but there's just a season of lull, lack of intentionality. It's led to suspicion. I wonder if people care for me. I wonder if I'm noticed anymore. God, would you repair that? Would you bring healing to Trinity Life here? Would you give it to our leaders? Give it to our BLG leaders, God, that they would multiply health relationships in their their groups. Holy Spirit, this is your work. We ask that you would do this. Jesus, you say that when the body's unified, the world will look at us and say, ah, those are disciples. I see. I see the difference. God, would you do that with us? I pray that we would be a strong witness in Toronto. We would be a generous church that we would give from the strength that you've given to us in our inner being. And Lord, when we do that, that we would see many, that Lord, one day we would see an auditorium like this one filled with people to capacity because they're receiving your healing. We pray to that end that you would be worshiping glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name.